0: The most concise report to detail the days leading up to when Doreen Vincent disappeared on June 15, 1988, as well as the days that would follow, did not come out in the days or weeks or even months after she disappeared. Those events would be detailed in the certain seizure warrant which led to Mark Vincent's arrest for having a gun in his possession, which we read for you in the last episode. The date on that warrant is July 31st, 1989, well over a year after Doreen's disappearance. You might have noticed as we read through the items that we revealed some specific pieces of information which we hadn't shared before, the first being the street address of the house. 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road, Wallingford, Connecticut. It's eerie the way the house stands alone in the middle of open farmland. When you first turn on to Whirlwind Hill Road and drive over Mackenzie Reservoir, you get to the other side of the reservoir, and there's wall-to-wall trees on both sides. There are some houses once you get to that side, mostly all farms, and as you go up the steep hill, The houses are on each side of you, and they're a normal distance apart from each other. Meanwhile, you still have thick trees on both sides of you as well. But once you get up to that first little peak on the hill, you get through this tunnel of trees on both sides. And suddenly, everything is open space. And immediately, there it is, right across from Gouveia Vineyards. But what is even more chilling than that, when I rode up there with Joe and Jessica, we found that whatever road we took, whether it was a side road off of Whirlwind Hill or one of the back roads, somehow the house was always visible on the horizon. No matter where you're standing on Whirlwind Hill, 1316 is just there in the distance. It looms over you like it has a story that it's begging to tell you. So for this episode, we're going to walk through some of the items detailed in the search and seizure warrant that we shared with you in the last episode. We'll also share with you Sharon Vincent's statement, which she gave to police on July 8th, 1989. This is season two, episode seven of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Demio. I said in my last episode that Sharon Vincent's actions throughout this entire ordeal are troubling. Truth is that's an understatement. Sharon Vincent's actions were unacceptable. When Doreen went missing, she was reported to have walked out the front door of the house with her denim jacket, which she wore all the time, a blue denim purse, a burgundy wallet with a Velcro closing with either 50 or $70 in it, a purple wristwatch with a broken strap, a tape player and microphone, a pinkish purple canvas duffel bag, and in addition to her denim jacket, she was also wearing tan shorts and her purple Reebok sneakers. But then we find out in the warrant that as Sharon Vincent was moving out of the house long after Mark Vincent had left the family in 1988 and moved in with a woman named Roseanne Poloni, Sharon found every single one of those items in Doreen's room. Rather than report that she found these items to police, to Doreen's mother, to anyone, she instead takes these items and keeps them at her house and at her brother's house in Newtown, Connecticut. Nobody knows that Sharon is keeping all these items until she is re-interviewed by police on July 8th of the following year. And when police asked her for these items, she refused to turn them over. They weren't inventoried by the police until July 10th, 1989, after Sharon had been served with a search warrant. Why would she refuse to turn over evidence in a missing person case? especially when that missing person is her stepchild but apart from sharon's actions think about what that means for a second this means that if doreen had left from that house that night she left with nothing not a bag not her wallet not even her sneakers that she wore all the time or her jacket that she wore all the time a runaway as it were leaving the house completely empty-handed So on July 8th, 1989, Sharon gave this statement to the police as she was being re-interviewed.
1: I, Sharon Vinson, am giving this statement of my own free will. I realize that I am not in police custody and am free to leave if I wish. I wish to give this statement to the police now to assist them in any way that I can locate my husband, Mark's missing daughter, Doreen. I married Mark Vincent five years ago. We lived in New York for a time and then moved to Bridgeport, Connecticut. On June 5th, 1988, we moved into a house at 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road in Wallingford. When I say we, I mean Mark, Doreen, and I, and Mark and our two children, Paul and Sarah. Doreen, who was 12 at the time, did not like moving into the house for a number of reasons, one of which was that all of her friends were in the Bridgeport area. On June 15th, 1988, the day Doreen disappeared, I remember Mark getting home from work around 4.30 or 5.00 p.m., and I had dinner ready for them. Mark, Doreen, and our two children were all sitting down eating dinner when I had to leave to go to church in West Haven. This was at around 6.00 p.m. or 6.15 p.m. I came back from church at around 11.30 p.m., and when I got back, Mark was in the kitchen getting a cup of coffee. Mark had asked me where I had been, and Mark said that he was glad that I was at home, He said that he had to go out and that Doreen had left. He told me that he was going to Donna's house, Doreen's mother in Waterbury, because he thought that Doreen was going over to her house. Mark came home sometime during the night. I was asleep in bed, but I awoke when he came in, and I think it was somewhere around 3 a.m. He did not say anything to me until the next morning. He told me the next morning that if Donna called not to let on to her, that Doreen was missing, because he said that he was going to go over to Donna's house and see if he could find Doreen. Donna did call, and I believe it was on Friday, the day before she came over, and I gave her directions to the house. Mark was home and met her in the yard. I heard them talking, Mark telling Donna that Doreen was missing and that he thought that she had Doreen and Waterbury. I heard Donna say that this was untrue. Donna then came into the house and called the police. Mark was hesitant to call them because he still believed that Donna had Doreen. I did not get involved too much because I had to keep my two kids out of the way and get them into bed. During the next several days, I did not see Mark much because he was out. He said that he was out looking for Doreen. Detective Cameron came to the house and talked with me about the case. The day after Doreen was missing, Thursday, I went into Doreen's room to see what was missing. I found in her closet her jean jacket that she usually wore. After being in her room and thinking about it for several days, I believe she left with shorts, a top, her purple-colored Reebok sneakers, her denim pocketbook, which had in it a telephone or address book, She also took some makeup and hairspray. I also think she took with her about $70 in cash, which she had been paid for doing work around the house. Since that time, I've not heard nor seen Doreen and I have no idea where she is. I also wish to add that sometime around the end of June, 1988, Mark and I bought a gun. It was a small pistol with a cylinder type gun. We also got ammunition for it. I registered it in my name. Sometime around October 1988, I brought the gun back to the shop, the Silver City Gun Shop in Meriden, and sold it back to them. When Mark found out, he was furious and made me go back and get it back, and I did. As far as I know, he is still in possession of this gun, along with another long gun, like a shotgun or a rifle. I've read this statement consisting of two pages. It is the truth to the best of my knowledge. I understand that if I have made a false statement which is intended to mislead the police in their investigation, I will be in violation of the law. The
0: front door of 1316 is also a point of contention in this story that seems to get glossed over. Right from the beginning, there is a discrepancy between Mark's version of events and Sharon's version of events. It states in the warrant that Mark realized that Doreen was missing when he found the front door of the house wide open at around 9 p.m. the night of June 15th. Sharon initially said that Doreen could not have left through the front door because a key was needed to open the two-sided deadbolt and that there were only two keys, one that Sharon had with her and one that Mark had on his person. She also said that when she got home at around 1130, the door was shut and locked exactly how she left it. So was the door wide open at 9 p.m. that night or was it not? There is also some confusion in the timeline of events during the day on June 15th. The warrant says on or just prior to June 15th, Mark became angry with Doreen and began paddling her when she was in her room. During this incident, which occurred in the afternoon, there was so much screaming and yelling going on, Sharon Vincent took the two small children, whose names are Paul and Sarah, three and two years old, as we mentioned in the last episode, took them out of the house into the backyard so they wouldn't have to listen to it. However, this incident could not have happened in the afternoon on June 15th because in Sharon's statement, it specifically says, On June 15th, 1988, the day Doreen disappeared, I remember Mark getting home from work around 4.30 or 5 p.m. and I had dinner ready for them. Mark, Doreen, and our two children were all sitting down eating dinner when I had to leave to go to church in West Haven. This was around 6 p.m. or 6.15 p.m. The screaming and yelling described is likely the same commotion that the neighbor Jim Piscati spoke of when we spoke to him. And if Jim Piscati was at home in his yard overhearing this incident, then it couldn't likely have been on June 15th, which was a Wednesday.
2: Again, was it during the week or on the weekend? And I thought you could probably figure that out just based on what you were out here yeah, doing. Because, you know, I'm working all day long. Right. And on weekends, I'm, you know, fiddling around outside. I don't know, like today, I'm outside today freezing my buns off like you are yeah I can, I can see your knees yeah. going oh. like this yeah now I know you don't really have an approximate time of the day but when do you generally it was probably in the afternoon early afternoon late afternoon it's probably that it could have been early after early afternoon because it would have been it would have been late afternoon I would have been out here doing what I had to do Thursday. you seem like an early riser five o'clock yeah, let's okay. go I'll call you that's my thought all right so because there's, there's been some, some some conflict as far as whether this happened early in the day or late in the day. Um, so, But you don't even know what day.
0: That's right. It would have had to have been on the weekend. And there's a few other things to unpack with this paddling incident. It's mentioned once in the search and seizure warrant, but never again in any report about Doreen. In other words, it's not a sticking point in the story in the same way as the broken window or the two-sided deadbolt on the door. Also, getting back to Sharon Vincent's actions, what a way to devalue the safety and the well-being of a child. Doreen is upstairs and she's being paddled so hard that there's screaming and yelling going on, which the neighbor across the street is able to hear. Sharon's response is to take the two small children and go out into the backyard, It was more important to protect their ears than to protect the older child from being beaten. Sharon may not have given birth to Doreen, but Doreen was still entrusted to Sharon's care. But there's nothing to indicate in any of Sharon's actions that that seemed to matter. Moving forward with the events listed in the warrant, it states here, On June 19, 1988, in the evening, Donna Jones called Mark Vincent at Whirlwind Hill Road. Mark told Donna that he had been at Bridgeport all day, looking for Doreen. Donna then related that she knew this wasn't true, as her parents had called Whirlwind Hill Road earlier in the day and had spoken to Mark there. Further, on June 19, 1988, Mark Vincent went to visit an old family friend, Georgia Lewis, at her home in West Reading. During this visit, he never mentioned that Doreen was missing. He also visited his mother on June 19th, and again, never told her Doreen was missing. Both Lewis and Mrs. Vincent learned that Doreen was missing when Donna Jones called them to see if they had seen her. Now, Georgia Lewis is a fascinating person in her own right, Here's Donna speaking about her.
3: We had this lady that we both knew, mutual friend of ours. Her name was Georgia Lewis. She's probably sure she's dead now, because um, she had to be at least 25 years old. I mean, maybe not. But um, she lived in this beautiful home in Reading. I mean, she she used to be a actress or something, you know. Um, but she was a very, very, very sweet woman, and um, she. Uh, She used to give him a lot of jobs to do. Like okay. do my roof, you know, give him like a couple thousand dollars, whatever it was, you know, at the time or something. You know, can you fix my back door? Can you build me a new porch or something? And Mark can do all these things. Yeah. He's very good at it. Build me a hamper. I remember he built her a hamper, and this is you're talking in the eighties, you know, for hundred fifty dollars. You know, I'm like, hey, you gotta be kidding! Okay. somebody gonna pay hundred fifty dollars for a freaking
0: hamper. Yeah, right? and
3: I loved Georgia. Yeah, I did, and I had a conversation with her, and he never told her that she was missing either because i called her and oh. i said did he ever tell you
4: well, how long said, no. after she went missing was that
3: it was a matter of a couple few days he did used to see her all the time georgia all the time did she
4: did georgia know doreen
3: yeah oh yeah oh yeah yep so what made you call her just because you know oh you, I, I, you know in the beginning i i i checked out all bases i really did
0: georgia lewis passed away in her sleep on july 3rd 2014 at the age of 82. According to her obituary, she was born on June 20th, 1932, which would mean that when Mark went to visit her, it was the day before her birthday. She was born in Delmopolis, Alabama, and moved to Connecticut in the late 1950s. She was discovered while singing in a community choir, and during the 1960s, she was asked to host a television show that aired out of New York on Channel 9 called TV Gospel Time, where she became not only the first black woman, but the first woman at all to host a nationally syndicated television show. both Georgia Lewis and his own mother, Lori Vincent, on June 19th, and at no time mentioned anything about Doreen being missing for four days at that point. Toward the end, the warrant mentions that Mark Vincent was interviewed on July 17th, 1989, following his arrest for possession of the gun. We have two pages of the transcript from that interview, which was conducted by Sergeant Thomas Hanley, and we'll have that for you up next. If you would like to help solve Doreen's case, please consider becoming a monthly patron on Patreon. You can contribute any amount you like, and there are rewards for your generosity. For the $10 per month tier, you can view each page of the search and seizure warrant read in episode six. New exclusive content is added every week, so please help us Give a voice to Doreen Vincent. Visit us on Patreon.com/slash Faded Out Podcast. Thank you. The top cover of the transcript of Mark Vincent's interview reads, Transcript of Tape-Recorded Interview of Mark Vincent, Detective Bob Fliss, Detective Sergeant Thomas Hanley, July 17, 1989, WPD 88-9112. Jessica Fritz Aguire found this when she went to Danbury to look up the records for the gun trial. The full document is more than 30 pages long. This is just a two-page portion of it, in which Mark admitted that he was a convicted felon in possession of a gun. The portion that we have begins with Sergeant Thomas Hanley.
5: Nah, we're keeping those pictures. I don't have any pictures. I gave them all out. This is all we have of her. We have made no assumptions at all in this case. All we have done is simply confront you with some discrepancies and some misconceptions that we have. Why do I hear assumptions from people that you've talked to? Who have we talked to? You mentioned Roseanne Poloni. I don't even know what she looks like, let alone talk to her. Who talked to Roseanne Poloni? Another investigator in this case.
2: And, and Roseanne, uh, is, is telling you, well, I have a temper. Yeah, I've got a temper. I got, a, I got a good damn right to have a temper. But she's also told you I've never hit her. And I suppose she hasn't told you the things that she's thrown and, and broke. And, and the night that she told me I wanted to draw blood with the phone and after after she, uh, she tried to hit me with the phone. She probably never told you all of that. So you take one side of the story and you assume and you assume and you assume. That's my daughter you're talking about. So why did you buy a gun? Because somebody blew a bomb off at her house one night. And what was the gun going to do? A gun was going to do what a gun does.
5: And you're a convicted felon, aren't you? Uh Uh-huh. And you know that's a no-no, right? To have a gun in the house? To have a gun in the house, on your person, in your car, anywhere. I don't have a gun on my person or in my car, but you can have a gun at home. No, you can't. What what if somebody blew a bomb off near your house? Where?
2: Somewhere in the front yard. What house? The house on Whirlwind Hill.
5: So you went out the next day and bought a gun. What were you afraid of? Uh, The kids. Kids? So you bought a gun?
2: No, 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 no. My kids. My kids. The two remaining that didn't run away. And I told that to Donna in a, in a sense of, you still have to take care of Stephanie. It wasn't forget about Doreen and go on with your life. It had nothing to do with that. It had to do with Donna having a hard time with Stephanie. And I was trying to be somewhat compassionate and, and tell her, look, Donna... You still have to... You you still have to take care of... Of Stephanie. That's all. That's all that was. Now you can put it in... You can insert any... I don't even care. I... I, I really don't.
5: I, I really don't. Yeah, you do. You do care. Otherwise... I care. You wouldn't be there. I care about one thing. I care about my daughter.
2: And yeah, I'm afraid to see her. I'm afraid to see her. Because of the stories... Month after month after month after month, period. I'm afraid to see her, that's right. I'm hard. I'm hardened right now. I'm very, very hardened. I miss my daughter. I care about her, yes. And I'm afraid to see her at the same time. You're not that hard. You can tell me you are, but... I have to be. I have to be.
5: You got a conscience.
2: Yeah, I have a conscience, okay? But I have to overlook all the hell that I've heard and been through, and all of that, over her. I have to because I still have to work. You understand that?
5: Uh Uh-huh.
0: When Jessica went down to Danbury and picked up these documents, she met up with Donna, Stephanie, and Carol later that same evening. The sound that you're about to hear now was taken by Jessica when she caught up with them at a bingo hall that night and let them see the transcripts for themselves.
3: Okay. So, I don't know. Everything is just very, very... Straight.
6: You see, this is all about him. All the hell he's been through. He has to work look, over that because he has to work? Mm-hmm. Are you fucking kidding me? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry.
3: I no, are you kidding me? I took I've been almost a month off from work after this happened. In the beginning, I went back to work because I thought that everything, you know, I, I can handle it or whatever. Well, I couldn't, okay? And I left work, and I took a month off from work to do Probably stupid, senseless things, but like I told you, go to New York, hang up flyers, go down. Stupid, senseless ports, things like look for her. Yourself. Right, Ex- but I mean things that I really didn't believe in because I believe from the beginning that he had something to do with her disappearance. But I, I still went out and I did those things. I did I, I, because just she's in your case, daughter. just she's in your case, daughter. exactly, exactly.
6: What? He gave all his pictures of his missing daughter
3: away. Who does that? One and then two. Okay, you're saying that you gave them all
6: away. This, when? He said, okay. Yeah. It says no. We're keeping the pictures. of The detective. Okay. This is. I don't have any pictures, Mark
4: Vincent. I gave them all out. Oh. Real quick, and this confused me too, this is the first page, that's 30, and then this is 31. So if it seems like oh, it's out of four, okay, all right, all right.
6: So we have a and then he puts, okay, um, this is all we have of her. We've made no assumptions at all on this case. All we've done is simply confront you with some discrepancies and some misconceptions that we have. Why do I hear assumptions from people that you've talked to?
4: That's what you're worried about? Yeah. Absolutely. You know what the answer to that is? I didn't do it. So you can at yeah. me all you want. Right. And he, oh, that's
3: exactly. That's why I said that uh, you know? to the, or the officers in the beginning. Do you want to take a, take a lie detector I'll take a lie detector test. I will do this, you know. No problem. Please. Let's get it over with, you know. Get that out of the way, and then you can proceed with a real investigation. Don't look at me.
4: Well, it doesn't make any sense. So I'm thinking, like, why would you drive in from... Waterbury to Wallingford if you had her because you were playing a big joke? I know. That doesn't make any sense at all. No. Absolutely. Thank God she gave
3: me directions. Otherwise, what would I have do? Well, the other,
4: so here's my other question.
6: Yeah. I have, well. You got a gun because you were afraid for your kids? I don't understand that. That doesn't make
4: any sense. And then he says something about a bomb went off by his yes. house. Did you read that? Yes you yeah. But okay, but think cuz we can't figure this out. Why does she disappear in June and he buys a gun in July? Why would you do that? Cuz if you look, did you you look at Sharon's statement, right? She born in July. Yeah. Okay, all right. All right. Because, um, where's Sharon statement? Do you have it, stuff? No, man Carol has it. Okay. Um, Where is she? Think about this. That whole statement from Sharon, right, was like, blah, blah, Doreen, blah, blah, Doreen, blah, blah, Doreen. And at the very end, it says, oh, and by the way, I also want you guys to know that we bought a gun. Yeah.
6: yeah. Yeah, I think the cops and that they sold it to a pawn shop and, and Mark threw a fit. He yeah. threw a fit and he went back because he threw a fit. <clears> because God and because And they weren't it. even together. Because if it was in the pawn shop, the police could have got their hands up. You out. know,
4: that's that's a you good know what that's, I'm saying, that's I haven't so even that's thought why of yeah. the key. It's like giving oh. away the it's like giving away the key. So to the house. Let me let me lawyer you guys on this. So this was part of the this was an exhibit in the gun trial. Okay. Hey. I Thanks. i letting you seat. It? Did you read it? Yes. Oh, that's why I went up there. was Are you okay? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I thought you said, okay. It was quiet. <laughs> um, this is the exhibit for his gun trial. All they needed were these two pages where he says, I bought a gun. That's all they, but there's a whole record Section out there. Of, of bullshit. But. Th- there's a whole statement that the cops won't let me have for whatever reason. Oh. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. This okay. is this is so two pages of a whole hearts. statement. Oh, okay. So if you oh,
6: so That's here's terrible because when you're reading it, he is just feeling so much bullshit out oh. of his mouth. It is absolutely unreal that anybody
3: would
4: believe him under any circumstance.
3: It's true. I mean, so, so you really. And-
4: yeah, my other oh, and and Sharon calls them um. Mark and my children, our children, yeah. Doreen, and, like and I Doreen's mean, a I understand, bird and... yeah, I understand Doreen's not her biological child, but, but she when is. you take on that responsibility to marry somebody,
6: you marry their family, you marry their kids. The
0: portion of the transcript that we have between Mark and Sergeant Hanley can be difficult to follow. Mark says at the end that he's been through hell, but he still has to work. But Mark worked for himself, doing contracted jobs. He had the ability to set his own schedule and still be able to search for his missing child. Donna, who didn't work for herself, couldn't bring herself to go to work. She spent her time going down to New York and other cities putting up flyers for Doreen, which, as you heard, she felt was stupid and senseless. But she went and did it anyway, just in case Doreen could be found. The difference in Donna, Carol, and Debbie's actions versus Mark and Sharon's actions after Doreen's disappearance is astounding, and the story gets even darker from here. In my next episode, we're going to read for you the last article from the Record Journal newspaper, dated May 6, 2001. It's the longest newspaper article of them all regarding Doreen, and by far, it's the most revealing. Until then, please reach out to us on Facebook at facebook.com fadedoutpodcast. There's also a closed group that you can request to join called Followers of Faded Out, where you can join in on further discussion about the case. You can also reach out to us directly by email at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. And please also feel free to become a patron on Patreon. For $10 a month, you can view exclusive photos and documents, and that includes each page of the Search and Seizure Warrant, dated July 31, 1989. Thank you for joining me for Episode 7 of Season 2. I'm Sarah DiMio. See you next time. Faded Out is written, hosted, and edited by me. Sharon Vincent was portrayed by Alyssa Engdahl. Sergeant Thomas Hanley was portrayed by Matt Titor. Mark Vincent was portrayed by Daniel Brownstein. Background research by Jessica Fritz Aguirre. Produced by Joe Aguirre, Jason Pinette, and Maxwell McGee of Clovercrest Media Group. Visit clovercrestmedia.com for more on Faded Out, as well as other great original podcasts. Subscribe to Fade It Out on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts.